Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited, as usual. I say this for every guest, but this one, I'm really excited. I, I've definitely uh, learned a lot from this guest and stolen a lot of ideas into my own coaching. So today's guest won an NCAA Indoor Championship at Pepperdine. He's won four AVPs. He's finished in the top five 63 times in his career. He's won two FIVs and finished in the top five five times out of 31 events. Very impressive. He's also played on the Norseka Tour and medaled three times, and he's currently coaching at LMU. He coaches Flint and Day and Allen and Slick professionally, and he was named the men's collegiate national team coach for the U.S. He does some coaching for Gold Medal Squared, and you've heard of him. He's one of the creators and hosts of Coach Your Brains Out. Please welcome to the show, John Mayer. John, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for that intro. You make me sound like I'm better than I am, but uh, I'm excited <laughs> to be here, and I'm excited to be a part of your podcast. It's awesome what you're doing. Yeah, I'm glad we could get you. That that took a little bit of research, but I'm excited and and not to you know fast forward too much, but uh, hoping to jump right into the beach. And I think it does overlap with your indoor career a little bit. It says you played your first AVP in 2003, so you would have still been in university. Now at that time, were you thinking pro beach, or were you just happy to play at the highest level possible you could in your indoor off season? Yeah, I don't think I, I really thought pro beach was even doable for me. I just I loved playing volleyball and indoor season was done and you know i was lucky to grow up in an area here in southern california where uh, we could play a lot and and there's lots of tournaments so as soon as indoor season was done i was out on the sand and and i just started to find i really really loved it and uh, you know the where we would train you'd have uh you know kevin wong and jason ring and dane blanton and all these like you know professional players playing a couple courts away and so you just start to see it and be around it and like man I'd, I'd love to at least give it a shot so yeah, definitely in college, I started to, to recognize that the beach game was more suited for me and, and started to find the love for it. Now, the AVP, I, I would argue it's one of the best domestic tours. Like when we had Billy out on the show, we both kind of agreed Brazil would have to be up there and the AVP would have to be up there. So with you going through events and, and having to grind it out through the qualifier, do you remember the first time you got into the main draw? Like, was that a big accomplishment for what you were training for at that time? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was a huge accomplishment for, for me. Uh, and an exciting thing. It was actually with a, a longtime friend who re- he actually got me into beach volleyball. And it, it was, uh, I think he, this guy's name is Yuriv Lerner. And he, he's probably played 100 AVPs and he's qualified just in this one time. And I got to be a part of it. So it was a really neat moment. I remember jumping in the ocean after and just seeing how fired up he was. And um, yeah, it was a big deal. And, and I remember going like to the players meeting after and seeing all these, you know, Karch Karai's there and all these just legends I'd, I'd watched and been in the stands for. And, and then the next day in the player's tent kind of being nervous and unsure if I was allowed to take a sandwich. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was a huge deal. It was, uh, you know, I was, I was more like a, a little kid at Disneyland than uh, a fellow professional, but it, it was a fun step, fun first step. Nice. And when you were going through the AVP, did you feel like you were playing volleyball for a living and you were going to be professional? Or was it when you made the jump to the FIVB that that's when you felt like you were a pro player? Because I think there's enough AVP events that you can play and treat it like you're, you're a professional athlete, right? Yeah. And, and the, the place that I came from when I grew up, I didn't know about the FIVB. And I, I would go to, down to Manhattan Beach and watch the Manhattan Beach Open and watch yeah, Karsh Karai play against Jose Loyola and it looked like to me the highest and I think it was probably the highest level at, at that point this is you know maybe in 2002 around that that range and that was my dream was you know if I and I didn't think it was doable but if I was going to try to do anything it was to play the AVP and and to play on that that beach and those beaches that they were at and when I first came out there was I don't know 16 to 18 AVP events um, so I, I didn't really even have a thought of the FIVB I just I wanted to pursue that as hard as I could, and, and I was hoping one day I could you know 
be a main draw player and, and, and do all that. So that, that was the dream that was in front of me and, and the one that I really chased. Yeah, that's really interesting. If you had to guess at that time, like, is, is the FIB really for people who want to go to the Olympics and feel like they have a shot? Like, are there people who only play AVP that are probably great players that as a Canadian we've just never heard of just because there, there's so many events, like you said, and the level's good enough that they don't feel they need to travel? Maybe, you know, I think it's shifted. The AVP has less events now, and the FIVB, the level has gotten higher and more worldwide, and I think it's it's changed. Um, but I think there were, you know, there was Sean Scott and John Hyden who played. They never played any FIVB, I mean, maybe a handful, but they committed to just playing the domestic tour, and they would beat, you know, Phil, uh, Phil Delhauser and Todd Rogers, and they'd beat Jake Gibb and Sean Rosenthal. And those were our teams that were in the Olympics and, you know, winning medals, and then they'd come home and lose to these you know, these guys. So, so there, there were cases like that. I don't think it's like that anymore. You know, I think now when, when Americans come up, that's the big goal is to play on the FIVB and to, to play on that tour. Cause there really isn't enough of a, a career, you know, financially with just, you know, the seven or eight events on the AVP. I mean, we're very lucky to have it and it's, it's an amazing thing to, to be a part of, but it, it wasn't like then, you know, maybe the nineties or the, the early two thousands where you could solely play AVP and you could, you know, get by. Now, when you finally made the decision to go to the FAB and played your first one in 2009, was it a coincidence that you had won an AVP the same year and you felt ready to go internationally or was it just the, the right time for you? Like you're already playing at such a high level on the AVP. What finally happened for you that you wanted to represent the U S on the FIV tour? Yeah, I, th I think it was that, that I started to maybe believe in myself more and, you know, thought, Oh, maybe I can <laughs> hang with these guys. Uh, that year I, I remember beating, you know, Phil and, and Todd and, beating Jake and beating Rosie and all these guys that I had idolized and, uh, you know, had a great year with my partner, Jeff Nygaard, who had played and he's played in three Olympics and he wasn't interested anymore in the FIVB. He was kind of near the end of his beach career. And so I, you know, I started to think if I really want to continue to, to move forward and progress and, and really get these high level partners, it seemed like the best blockers They really wanted to go play FIVB. So I thought I got to get, you know, in that mix and Matt Furbringer, who was a great player for a long time. He was looking for a partner and, uh, I was, yeah, I was eager to go play and give it a shot. And uh, it was a fun first event I played. And when you were traveling, not only the AVPs, but FIVs as well, were you a guy who wanted to focus on winning in the outcome? Or even at that time, were you into like the growth mindset and process driven? Because uh, I'm looking at your resume and you've won a lot of events, but are, are you getting off the plane thinking I'm going to win the tournament? Or are you almost game by game? Like where do you fall on that spectrum as far as what you thought of a player when you're not only going to AVPs, but uh, representing the U.S. internationally? Yeah, I think it evolved. Uh, it, it changed through the years that I learned more and I was clearer on who I was and who I wanted to be. But I'd say generally, I always kind of felt like I didn't belong and I felt like I had to go out there and prove myself and probably most of the time felt like an underdog and was really focused on how can I get the best out of my partner? How can I get them to play really well? And maybe if they play really well, we can pull this thing off. So I think a lot I felt maybe a little bit like an imposter and you know, not, not that it, it limited me. I just loved playing, so I'd go out and play as hard as I could. But I never felt like, you know, I'm the favorite here and uh, I'm supposed to win this match. And I think as, you know, maybe later in the years as the, I had more success and, you know, you start to see players who are younger than you. I think that sometimes shifts your mindset. And and then you start to think about, you know, I'm supposed to win this match. And that end, you end up getting in an unhealthy place when you think about expectations uh, because expectations are out of your control. And, and when you just really think about, like, who do I want to be, uh, what are my values, and you go out and play like that, then the game the game can be pretty pretty fun. And then, you know, I think the results end up coming with it because you're playing the way you want to compete. 
Now, one thing that makes Beach pretty unique is just the qualification process, and you would have experienced this through AVPs, but also FIVs. Uh, I'm always curious when we have Beach players on the show and we ask them, what was your mindset getting off a plane and being in a qualifier? Like, does, did it honestly feel different knowing that you were in the main draw versus you were in a qualifier, just as far as all, all the little things that go into it, right? The logistics, the paying for, you know, your, your hotel and food if you don't qualify. Like, was there any... Anything that stood out to you as far as going through that process of, because I think you were one of the guys who experienced, you medaled at a tournament and then the next tournament you're in the qualifier, right? So it never gets easier on the world tour. How did you find like the ups and downs of being a qualifier team and a main draw team on tour? Yeah, it's it's just brutal. <laughs> just, <laughs> they're really brutal. You know, and some of the time you're making decisions like, well, we go play this one. We're going to play a country quota against, you know, Nick Lucena and, and uh, whoever he was with at that point. I don't know you know, Theo Brunner. So, you know, you really just have to think about what am I putting myself into? You know, I'm not even in the qualifier yet and I got to pay all this money. But yeah, I think it's, um, it took me a long time to start to figure out how to, how to be a pro. I think it's a big compliment to call someone a pro, you know, uh, that means you go, go about your business uh, at a high level in lots of ways. So yeah, I would land in, you know, China or Brazil or Europe and, and I just didn't know how to, get my sleep right and get food and, you know, get lost half the time. And so, you know, when you're that disoriented, you're not going to go out and compete at the level you want to. And so you, you kind of learn how to get, get on track with sleep, you know, first day, don't take a nap, uh, you know, maybe get some, some mel mel melatonin to uh, help you sleep better at night <laughs> and, um, you know, pack snacks, pack food, make it feel like, like home. So you just kind of got to figure out through, at least I did through lots of mistakes, uh, how to make it a little bit more comfortable but I think in the end, you just have to, you have to be okay with, you know, not feeling as good as you want to, because, you know, you can, you can not feel great and you can go out and compete really hard and, and, and end up winning matches. So, so if you get too caught up on feeling perfect, then you're in, in for the wrong deal because international travel and playing against the best in the world is uh, is really, really hard and you're not often going to feel your best. Nice. Nice. And as a Canadian, Kind of one thing we, we always notice with the Americans is is the partner switches, that there's so much depth there that people can play with several partners. And obviously, you've done this over your career. When you found a new partner, like did you feel the need that you wanted to play right side and you were going to defend? Or what were some things that you would not only do to find a partner? And then secondly, what are some things that you would do to get caught up and, and on the same page, whether you had a, a week to prepare or you were going to stay with that partner the whole season? Like, What are some things that go into a beach partnership for you? Yeah, actually, when you brought it up, my first thought I went to was uh, I had a roommate at Pepperdine. His name was Fred Winters, and he he played in you know in a couple Olympics for Canada, and uh, I think at least one or two. But he, he uh, was the probably the best athlete I've ever been around. And I remember trying to talk him into it. Hey, you could be pretty good on the beach, and try to get him as a partner when we were in college. Uh, he made the smart choice and made a lot of money indoors. <laughs> he, he was a stud. But yeah, how I went about it, I mean, I think my first mindset was to really understand that my competitors could be future partners and to really try to treat the people around me with respect and, and, to, and, and not that I was going to, you know, play against them easy. I was, I was going to, you know, treat them with respect by playing really hard and, and pushing them and, and, and in practice too, you know, with the AVP stuff, we, we play against, you know, a lot of our competitors every day. So, so they'd see the way I'd work and hopefully, you know, I'd, I'd know, well, you know, maybe they respect what I'm doing and one day I could be their partner. So, so I thought about it a little bit that way. You know, I, tr I tried to be a really good teammate to my partner to get the best out of them. Yeah, I guess, I guess that was kind of how I went about it. And then, you know, I, I was more into committing to a guy and building a team. I'd rather, I'd rather go through the ups and downs and see if we can, you know, figure out our weak spots and, and sharpen our strengths. And let's go through a couple seasons together and let's see how good we can get. Because it, it was always, 
I think it could be appealing to to jump around. And you know, we had one bad tournament, and that guy was playing pretty good, so I'll go play there. But I really I did that for for one season, and it wasn't so fun. But so after that, I really tried to you know form a team. Let's see if we can you know build something really sustainable and tough to play against, and go through the ups and downs together because we know the downs will make us better. And you know, and hopefully do it for a couple seasons because then you know after a couple seasons we've been through a lot and we know how to respond to all these different situations. So. That's kind of how I went through it. I forget there was another part to your question that I, I might have missed. Uh, I was just wondering for you, as a lefty, did you always kind of demand to be on the right side, or yeah, my my dad is coming from BBB info, so it doesn't tell me if you ever played on the left or or what really demanded you being a partner. Like, did you ever split block or block as well? Like, how many layers went into you finding a partner? Sometimes. Yeah, there's something to being a lefty that everyone just throws you on the right <laughs> and just says you have to go over there, and I think that's a big mistake. It's really important to develop your whole game. My left side game was really weak because of that, especially initially. You know, you get out and you know, I'd, and then indoors I sat and I played a little right side. So you just get thrown over there. I wish I would have diversified more. It would have strengthened my game. Um, but yeah, I, I, initially when I first, actually, I think the second time I qualified on the AVP, I full-time blocked. And I think that my partner was a little taller than me, but pretty much after that, I, I mainly defended full-time. I knew that's where my future was and pretty much primarily played right side. I actually played one event. I, my partner, Brad Keenan, who I played with for a couple seasons, he had sprained his ankle and I was scrambling for a, a partner for one event, and Andy Sess, who played on the FIVB for, for France for a long time, he was another lefty who was actually kind of looking to break into the AVP, and he was, you know, he's a really, really good player. He just didn't have any points. So he came in, and we played together, and it was, it was really fun. We, we both, what we did is we both wanted to be on the right, and we were better on the right. And if, uh, if you got served a ball and didn't side out, we'd just switch sides. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and we found... Uh, that ended up uh, kind of working out, and we actually had a couple wins. So that was that was a really fun one. Other than that, it was, it was primarily a defender on the right side. Nice. And did this philosophy kind of overlap and come into play when you started coaching? Because I believe you played a couple tournaments with Stafford and became his coach and obviously competed against Billy Allen a lot. So when you made the transition to become their coach, obviously it would still be fresh in their minds that you guys were, were across the net from each other, right? So did, did the same philosophy you approached finding a partner and competing with, you know, honor i guess across the net so you never really burned any bridges did that apply to your coaching as well i hope so yeah i think you'd have to ask ask them but i think our relationships uh even though i played billy way too many times probably 50 times and stafford played with and against a ton you know we were competitors but we respected each other and and uh and because of that yeah i think they felt comfortable asking me to coach them and then we are we're friends too you know billy and i have a long time friendship and Stafford as well so you know we thought it'd be fun to, to kind of do it together and, and I think one of the great things about you know being a coach and, and and a competitor is you really get to choose the people you get to play with in our sport in lots of other parts of life you're kind of forced into these uh, different scenarios with uh, different people so it's a cool deal that we get to be with people that we care about and grow to, and we can grow together so yeah I think because of the way they treated me and we treated each other that we were able to even though we were competitors we were able to form a team uh, now nice nice and before we take a dive into your coaching career there's just one name that keeps coming up in canada i was hoping you could give uh, a nice reference to and that's tom black and everyone with the women's national team is just over the moon to have a chance to work with him and what he's already done for the program i, I understand he had a big influence on your coaching and playing career well as well so what can you tell us with what we're inheriting with coach tom black here in canada yeah i'd say that's an understatement to say his influence on me he, he was my high school coach which is pretty unbelievable to have, you know, this guy who coached in the U.S. national team and, you know, has led the Canadian national team now. Was my coach in high school, 
so yeah, he, you know, I was planning on playing basketball and maybe trying to go to a JC and I wanted to go to the school in the Midwest, uh, Notre Dame. And he coached me. I played one year of uh, varsity volleyball in high school and he, he was my coach. And he, he said, you know, I think you might be able to play in college and uh, here's the place you can go. And he, he reached out to coaches and kind of just, I guess, showed a lot of belief in me at that point when I didn't have it in myself and I didn't even know what was possible. And then it just has continued for 20 years now that he's been in my corner and uh, created opportunities for me and shown, yeah, again, lots of belief. He's coached me as, you know, as a person, as a, as a player. And now he's coaching me as a coach. So he's been an incredible resource. He's someone I, I really try to model my life after because I, I see the way how hard he works. I see how uh, badly he wants to be great at what he does. Uh, I see how he, he creates these networks of people that he, he has all these experts around him and he learns from. And so, yeah, he's just an incredible guy. And, and he's someone who's, who like, I, I could never do what he does. How he, he takes on so many projects, like, I mean, coaching the Canadian national team, coaching the University of Georgia. Uh, he started uh, Gold Medal Squared Beach. He's just a, he just dives in and he goes all in on whatever he does and he, and he does it well. So, yeah, I could talk about Tom all day. He's, he's the man. You guys are lucky to have him. Nice, nice. Good to hear. Uh, when we had Billy on the show, he kind of was very modest about the podcast you guys are running and said that really he's doing it for selfish purposes and he wants to learn as much as possible. And, and I, I'm leaning towards maybe that was your solution too. But I'm wondering with being around Coach Black and then Marv as well at Pepperdine, was that kind of your hint into this growth mindset and transfer and all that stuff that kind of sparked the concept for Coach Your Brains Out? Or what really made you want to dive in and, and kind of frame the show the way you guys have? Yeah, I don't think it was like we like had a blueprint, like we're like, this is what we'll do. And this is the message we'll send. It was just, you know, Billy's always been a person who, when he likes something, he creates it. Like he, he loves reading books. And I think as a kid, he loved watching movies. So he made movies with his buddies and we were getting into podcasts and he's like, let's make a podcast. I said, okay, how do you do that? And he, you know, he figured out that side of it. And, and then at, at that point we had really started to get into, uh, you know, Tom Black had introduced the book mindset to me, you know, John Kessel, uh, Trevor Reagan, we're, we're talking about, motor learning a lot. Yeah. I was lucky to have, you know, Marv Dunphy, one of the best coaches ever, who was uh, a big, uh, he was a, you know, PhD and really understood motor learning. So I had all these resources around me and yeah, because of that. And, you know, I think like Billy said, it was really selfish. Like I'm starting to get into these things. Let's go talk to experts who know how to talk about it so we can understand it more. And, and that, you know, just continued to feed the podcast is, you know, what am I interested in now and who can we talk to that can teach us more about it? And, and we just continue to do that. And, uh, Billy puts up with me for continuing to get guests. I think at times he's like, oh, I'm ready to be done with this. But, uh, you know, I keep uh, getting the guests and, and we keep going. So it's been, I've, I've gained so much out of it. I would have never imagined when we put that little iPhone in front of us five years ago that we'd still be going and and uh, having conversations about coaching and still like feel like there's just so much to understand and so much to learn ahead of us. So it's been just an incredible thing to be a part of. Nice, nice. So with you experiencing this as a player and a coach, I'm wondering how did you sort through some new information, like a, a pessimist point of view, like one example from a recent show is, is you're having guests on from the Pittsburgh Pirates and somebody might say, well, they finished last in their division. I wouldn't consider them an expert, but then you listen to the episode and there's a ton of good things on feedback and player development and things, right? So with your own knowledge of getting ideas for coaching and playing, how have you sorted through some things that might seem like a trendy idea versus something you can apply and is going to work in the long term? Yeah, good question. There's a lot there. I mean, I think first, you know, coaches look really good when they have good players, and <laughs> even if their their principles aren't aren't that strong, or you know, the way they they go about their 
their coaching, um, you know, isn't the, the most optimal way you can get by if you have good good players. And I think if you looked at like the Pirates, they, you know, that that group, uh, Bernie Holiday and uh, Kyle Stark, they came in to a, to a baseball team that hadn't made the playoffs in I don't know what it was, 40 years, and just one of the worst cultures in, in baseball. And they came in and absolutely transformed it and got that team to the playoffs and have done incredible things there. So, so I think there's something to what they've done. I know they, they did have a tough year last year. Um, but, but I, I think to your point, like, I, I don't think, uh, success always tells you how good your methods are. So I guess what, what guides me is, um, a little bit, you know, I, and something I've learned from talk, Tom Black is that, you know, we want to use fact instead of opinion as often as possible. And fact comes from, you know, research from, from these areas of maybe education where, you know, Carol Dweck has studied, um, you know, fixed and growth mindset for, you know, decades and decades. And, you know, we have some research to back, you know, the methods we use. Now, because of this research, I can give feedback in an evidence-based way. And the same with motor learning and, and neuro- neuroscience and all these areas that, that can guide my principles. You know, if, it, if we just talk to coaches, I think there's something to be learned from coaches who won a lot. But that doesn't mean that their principles are and their methods are, you know, you know, optimal. They, they could just have really good players. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of like a messy answer, uh, kind of all over the place with it. But, yeah, I think that's kind of where I end up with it. Nice, nice. And just uh, along the same lines, when you inherit an athlete who might be used to, I don't know, just some ends of the spectrum, like either block training or they're used to a coach who's almost controlling and yelling versus giving them autonomy, how how do you kind of navigate those process? Because it, it, to me, it's not a right or wrong discussion how they were brought up and how they how are they were trained. But when they're at LMU, like we've had Megan Nash on the show, and she talks about you really live these philosophies and you're all in. Like if you read the Coach Your Brains Out book, like you're you're living that daily. So when you get somebody who's not used to that and resistant, how do you start to navigate those situations? Because obviously they don't have your background and the knowledge, right? So do you just share the evidence with them, or how do you show them that there there might be another way to versus how they were kind of trained growing up? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. I think with players, it, um, it, it can be tough. It can be challenging. And, and they, especially the first couple of weeks, they want to look good in front of you. Like they want to show you, you know, and they want to do what's comfortable and, and, you know, they're thrown in this new culture. So it can be challenging and you have to try to get to know them and understand their background and where they came from. And, and you really have to, um, yeah, I guess live what we believe in. Like, you know, they make mistakes. We're not going to jump all over them. And then, you know, if you, I think if your culture is strong and if you already have leaders with you and they're, they're bought in, then the new people are going to buy in too because they see what you're doing is working for, for the other people. And, and yeah, we, gen- we generally want to be a part of the tribe versus outside of the tribe. So sometimes that process can take, you know, weeks or, or months even, depending on the athlete. But um, I think that's just part of the fun part of coaching. Now with, with coaches, I think it's, it can be different and harder because – they're not necessarily a part of your tribe. You know, if you're talking to a, a coach at a clinic or working with someone new and, you know, has questions. So, uh, I think part of it is, is asking them, you know, what they do and why they do it. And if, if they have good reasons for it, uh, and then just kind of trying to get them to move the needle a little bit more forward, you know, here's some evidence for why autonomy makes a little bit more sense. You know, do you think, uh, do you think this would be helpful for your athletes? And, uh, I think it's, you know, the, the less it's like me lecturing at them and the more we can have a conversation about like, you know, here's a story about how I use it personally and, and how the evidence backs it up. And, you know, what do you think? And we can go back and forth a little bit. So that's, you know, it's, it's a hard deal. And I, cause, and I think, sorry, the last part would be that lots of times I'll, I'll make sure I tell them, you know, I've made 
lots and lots of mistakes as a coach. I did this tons of times and I've learned through my mistakes that I can do it even better. And here's a way that I've found is more effective. So I think making sure I don't come from this like high pedestal, like I know it all. Cause that for sure, like I definitely don't know it all. I make lots of mistakes and, and uh, you know, I think the more they can, they can sense that and feel that, that it's an open conversation and we're both learning together. Then, then maybe the, uh, the door starts to open up and we can have a real conversation. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, along the same lines with just evidence-based coaching, we all know that game-like and more realistic makes sense and it transfers the most, but obviously situations come into play where on the beach, if we're just going to play a set to 21, that might be game-like, but I only got three situations to peel and convert that to a kill, right? So that situation's just not happening enough for me to you know, really develop and work on that skill. So how would you kind of guide coaches or how have you done this in your own career to create realistic situations that maybe aren't 100% game-like? I always like the Canadians, you guys say peel. We say, I think we say, say pull or some people say oh, nice. and it dropped. So whenever I coach the Canadians, I try to change it. When I was coaching <laughs> Megan, Megan Nash or we have Darby done now, I'll say, uh, yeah, when you peel. Um, so yeah, good, uh, yeah, it's an important question because, yeah, we want to work on specific skills. And for some players, you know, peeling off the net is maybe priority one and, and we want them to get better at it. And like you said, just playing straight games is maybe not creating it often enough. So what we do is something called tutors where it's a, a teaching part of our, our practice. It's usually after our warm up, and in the tutors, we uh, usually don't score it. So it's a little bit more, more process based and our focuses are more proximal, which would be more like maybe body parts or making fundamental changes. And, you know, for example, for the, the peeling off the net example that you gave, we'd, we'd run a drill where we'd say, you know, you got to set five feet off the net and you got to, we call it a challenge. The, the puller is what we say, challenge the peeler. So the attacker has to hit the ball at them. And once we dig it, then it's live. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly game like other than we're making them set off the net a little bit and, and pushing the attacker to hit, hit them. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a lot more, there's a lot more transfer there because you're getting a live swing. Um, you're getting, uh, you know, having to have the timing of the peel versus kind of standing on a box and, and chipping at them as they, they pull a bunch of times. So that's what, you know, you, the tutors is how we do it. We think about what's the skill we want to work out, work on. How can we put them in as game-like environment as possible? And then let's give them lots of feedback on that one skill, whatever it is, you know, passing, attacking, uh, you know, defending. And then, yeah, we'll, we'll just go through the tutor like that. Nice. And obviously on the beach with us, you know, two on two, those situations can come up a little bit more. If you were to work with an indoor team, would you suggest, creating opportunities to play two on two, four on four, six on six. Like I think you, you might get labeled as a beach coach, but obviously with all the research you've done, you're, you're aware of the indoor game as well. So just for any indoor coaches listening, how would you create those situations or, or is there time in an indoor practice to kind of limit and get the more contacts? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not as in, in the indoor game as I once was, but I love it. And I, I know there's just tons of evidence of small sided games. So going to like a three verse three or a four verse four, just creates an environment where, you know, maybe someone at middle back has the whole court to read and cover and puts them in, you know, a challenging situation. And you could do, you could set up, you know, tutors where the pin hitters, you know, have to get set every ball and they're working on their connection with the setter, you know, running a go. And, and in this four on four situation, you know, the setter really only has that one option. So you can really develop that connection. So, yeah, I think there's a ton of value to it. Uh, you know, there's, it's easier to coach because you're there's, you know, instead of watching 12 players, you can maybe hone in on, on the three versus three or the four versus four and, and get a little more locked in on the feedback. So yeah, I think there's, there's just lots of reasons to do it. So I, I'd push it for sure. 
Yeah, this is this is awesome stuff. Thank you. I was wondering if you could share how you track like either their gap analysis or performance plan or whatever you call it, because whenever we have someone from the women's indoor team, they talk about when Tom first got there, like everybody was bad because they were just so into learning and working on new things that they felt their performance drop a little bit. So I'm wondering when you're doing this with athletes, how much of it is just faith based and you think if you stick to the plan, it's going to work or can you actually map out and say, you know what, Josh, by it's the halfway point of the season, you're still not confident in your hand setting. We're just going to, we're going to shift away because we're in competition phase, right? So when you're, when you're planning this and working on new skills and the focus is on learning, how do you kind of track that they are improving? And at what point do you have to maybe go in a different direction? Yeah, that's a big question, question as a coach. Uh, and I, I don't think we have as much data as the indoor game does for like practice sort of stuff. So that'd be the ideal way to do it. You know, we do do st uh, stats by hand. So we have some, uh, you know, we, we do film every week with our athletes. So they come in and we observe it and we study it and we can see, you know, is there some progress and we'll even give our athletes, you know, homework to track it. Uh, you know, whatever, maybe there are two or three skills they're working on, uh, something with their platform or something with their, you know, their contact with their serve. We'll have them go through and, you know, over a month they'll track it, you know, seven out of 14, I was able to uh, be straight and simple with my platform and, you know, 10 out of 20, I, I, uh, was able to get a, a clean contact with my serve and then we'll look at next week to, you know, is the, the teaching working? How many did you get? So that's kind of one little way. And then you can give the athletes, they've got to study the film and they can, you know, do some of that work themselves. But yeah, I think the more it's, you know, if, if you're focused on, if you're everywhere, you're nowhere, you know, if you're focused on 20 things, it's, it's going to be hard to track progress. If we get clear on, you know, the, the two or three priorities for the athlete, then, it's a little bit easier to see if what we're doing is effective. And, and if it's not, then we got to be willing to adapt and change and, and look for a new way to teach and, and for them to understand uh, even better. So, yeah, I th that's definitely an art. It's a, a challenging part of coaching. And um, I think it's important to explain that, you know, when we're in these tutors and we're doing, you know, more fundamental changes, we're just we're not looking so much at the result, but is the fundamental getting better? And then we want to make sure, you know, a part of practice, we're really thinking more externally and more goal oriented and we do want to see you know is, is the the results are they they starting to shine through and and when they do let's ask them what do they do how they do it um, and let's start to connect like you know the fundamental that helps them to do uh you know what they want to accomplish so yeah that's I think it's a good question and a hard thing that we're always trying to figure out Nice. And with, with the homework you're giving them in the video study, is that how a university coach can really manage the dual system? Because as a Canadian, obviously, we don't have uh, beach volleyball as a, as a college or university sport. But when you're dealing with five different pairs and you might change partners at a certain point during the season, and obviously there's athletes who might just not travel, but they train with the team. Like, is that how you're making sure you get the most out of every athlete because you are dealing with teams within teams at your university? Yeah, I mean that's one way. I think there's lots of ways, um, but yeah, getting them to get used to studying the film and and not. I think there's like watching film for highlights, and then there's you know having a clear task to understand and and uh, and track. So I think there's a you know some teaching to be done there to show them how to how to study film. Sorry, I forget what was the second part of your question. I was just wondering, like a unique challenge with most of our guests being Canadians, you guys have like the dual system, so you'll have teams within teams of of maybe coaching up Darby and her partner, but you've got five or six other teams that you're focused on. So mm -hmm. how do you divide maybe what one person needs in a practice versus what the whole team does? Like, does it come down to the individual stuff? Like if I need to work on peeling, that drills for me. But if Darby's working on, I don't know, chasing high line, like that's in her drill. Or how have you found to manage the the teams within teams that are in the NCAA beach uh, system yeah. right now? Yep. Yeah. yeah, good question. And, and some of that comes from, you know, as 
that's this would be more like kind of see the preseason as a, a real time to work on individual stuff and and sometimes we'll get broader like you know everyone can upgrade their passing everyone can improve their their peeling we can all get better at serving when we get more into season we get them to play with their partners and then we start to get more data around like why isn't this team you know where, where are their strengths you know where are they meeting our kind of gold medal standards you know they're they're getting first ball kills uh you know at the percentage we like but they're not you know digging and converting like we wanted so once we start to get those numbers then we can go you know, it looks like this team can upgrade some transition stuff. This team uh, can serve a little bit tougher and, and so on. And then once we identify that, then we can set up some tutors around that. You know, let's put our, you know, we have our three coaches that we're allowed to have. So, you know, let's put two or three teams running a little tutor, uh, working on their transition attacking. And then on another court, we're going to do some serving to space and, and really trying to figure out how we can create some more aces. And then on the, the third court, uh, we can really, you know, work on some, some blocking and, and peeling off the net. So, so we, we, yeah, we try to get the data and, and show it to the players. Like, here's, you know, here's where you're meeting the standards and here's where you can improve. And then we'll set up the tutors so they can come in and go, go work on them and, and get, you know, one or two, 2% better at those things. Nice. And just kind of shifting to your, your professional teams. I was wondering, how do you frame your game plan? Like, are, are you going to say blocker, defender, left side, right side, or are you going to actually say like, if, if Flint and Day are going to play against Melissa and Sarah, are you talking about them winning worlds? Like how, how much details? Cause obviously for like Billy and Stafford, when they're playing against Evandro, I don't think there's any way to tiptoe or, or be fluffy about the serve coming. Right. So how do you keep it in like a challenge state versus a threat of like overhyping what some of these international players can do? Cause there's, there's some special athletes on tour and I'm wondering how do you frame the message? So it's not, not overhyping them, but still delivering on what they can do. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that can be a challenge, too, because some of those are already so strong in their head. Uh, there's a guy, Ken Revisa, who I think is one of the great sports psychologists who wrote a great book called Heads Up Baseball. And this is, I think, is one way to go about it, and I don't know if it's the best way. He, he'd go, you know, there's, he'd tell our girls, you know, if we're playing UCLA or USC, who maybe they're number one in the country, he'd said, yeah, there's two girls named Sally over there. Let's go play LMU volleyball. So, you know, he'd kind of go that way, where we don't care, you know, what what's on their you know, on, on their jersey or who they are. We're just going to go BS and figure out who we are. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, now, when you talk about someone, you know, like Sarah Pavin, who imposes a, a, a block that you don't see too often, or Evandro, who can hit a serve, you want to formulate a plan, you know, for how we're going to work around it and how we can, you know, maybe take advantage of it. But I, I think they already know, you know, that there's a challenge there. And it's more just what's the solution that we can create and, and I don't think it's like a long conversation. It's going to be, you know, let's maybe we'll look to set off the nut a little bit more. Maybe we can get her to to appeal more, and we can attack her. And, and with Evandro, maybe we'll slow him down and make sure we use a timeout. Or uh, it looks like his favorite spot is, you know, to hit the one seam. So let's shade there. But you know, just some little adjustments. And then the, that's kind of the beginning of the conversation, the scouting report. And then to me, the the most important stuff is the second half, or maybe the second three quarters where we talk about who we want to be and how we want to play and when we're at our best is what we focus on. So I think it's important to cover both, but uh, to primarily talk about who you are. Nice. And I think one of the challenges that you might face on the beach is just teams don't have the finances to travel with their coach all the time. So when you're not on site, obviously the, the message might stay the same, but how are you communicating and getting a hold of the athletes when you know they're in a different country, time zone might be a factor and all those things that go into being like a professional beach team on tour? Yeah, still still working on that. You know, I'm, I'm, last summer was my first summer as a coach, uh, for a full-time coach and, and as a professional coach. So, you know, I didn't even know what I was getting into. I just knew, you know, I really cared for those four people and I was happy they offered 
uh, to ask me to coach. But I also had to be straight up that, you know, I, I'm a full-time coach at Loyola Marymount. And that's my primary focus. So they were willing to to uh, adapt and work around my schedule as well. You know, they we have a just a little website we use called VLoop where they, they'd upload the video so I could go through it and send them notes. Our, our USA uh, stats have come a long way. Uh, Tyler Wittison's awesome. He, st- he sends me uh, kind of a full full uh, data rundown of some tendencies on the other side so then I can simplify it and email it out to them. So usually we're able to formulate it and get ahead of it. You know, you can, okay, here's the pool. You know, I can write out the scouting reports and then, you know, I won't send it till, you know, if I know their time zone, I won't send it till the night before their match. So uh, I wouldn't say it's always that clean. When we're doing it good, it comes out like that. Sometimes it's, I haven't been able to help as much as I like, but when we're doing it good, that's kind of what it looks like. And another unique challenge of coaching professional teams is obviously you have your team in each gender, but obviously if they're going to bring someone else to practice, how have you found that you're you're coaching up your team, but still obviously giving attention and respect to the, the training partners, right? Like if, if your team brings a different squad to practice, are you not interacting with them at all? Who's planning practice? Like do they get any autonomy? How have you found the balance of coaching another team that you might be playing against either on tour or the AVP? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I have erred towards, I mean, I always try to be friendly and, and talk with them. And a lot of them I competed against and know well, even, you know, the FWB players who are in town. So, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them more at the beginning of practice. And then, you know, if they do have a coach with them, we'll, we'll maybe talk for a minute. I've found for the most part, and maybe just because I love coaching, I'll kind of come in and like, Hey, I've got a plan. Are you okay with all this? And, and usually people are good with it. So that, that's, uh, I've usually been able to just take the reins. And then from there, I mean, I see them a little bit as opponents. I don't really want to help them out so much. I'm, I'm just trying to coach my team, and I'm really locked in on them. You know, I'll make sure I explain the drill clearly uh, so that both sides understand it, but but I'm just giving feedback and coaching up uh, my team. Um, there's been times where, you know, I, I'd love to say something, but but I don't want to do that because, uh, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't want to, you know, help out one of our opponents because uh, we might play them next week and give them something that uh, they can beat us with. Right, right. And one thing that Billy shared with us, maybe it was a team secret, but he let it out of the bag that you're, you're really good at managing autonomy. Instead of coming to practice and saying, what do you guys want to work on? You'll say, do you want to work on this or do you want to work on this? So you're still giving the choice, but you're, you're kind of still guiding them in a direction. I was wondering if you've come across athletes that just had a totally different view of what was happening and didn't think that what you had identified is the gap. How do you manage those situations while still honoring like autonomy? Like, is there ever been a situation where you're the coach and you're the voice or is it important in beach volleyball just with the rules and everything that goes into the team dynamic that they always have a say in, in the drill design and what practice is going on? Yeah, I think it can depend on the athlete with, um, yeah, with the professionals with Stafford and Billy, they have a pretty good sense of kind of the main focuses and, you know, I'm there to help give them my, my feedback, my opinion, but I trust what they see and what they feel. And, And when they're, when it's their fight, then they're going to fight a lot harder. If it fits my, you know, my fight, they're not going to be as fired up. So, so with them, yeah, it's just, you know, I kind of have a sense, you know, I think passing is important for us and here's some of the numbers. And then, you know, what do you think within passing, which, which part of passing do you want to focus on? You know, the way you move or where you look or, or whatever. Now with the, the college players, uh, I think again, it depends on the relationship I have with them. And for me, it would be really good feedback if I, if I gave them autonomy and, and they kind of were on a completely different page or, you know, I was kind of guiding them towards something I thought was more important, but they kind of fought against it. It would just show me that I hadn't, hadn't probably done my homework and showed them the stats well enough or, or showed them the video 
and, and help them understand what they should prioritize. So it just would be a good feedback for me to know, you know, like, okay, I got to make sure I explain why we're doing what we're doing. Um, but generally I've, I've found people really, really like autonomy. I think if it's like, you know, we're going to, you know, what do you guys want to do today for practice? Like that's one extreme, you know, they don't really want that. They want someone to, to narrow the options down. You know, they want, you know, one or two options, not one, two, two or three options. So then they can have some, some control from there. Um, so I think you got to do it the right way. And, and, and I'd imagine the younger the player, the, you know, the more limited, you know, even simple stuff like, do you want to hit seven serves or eight serves? You know, that's, that's a small difference and it probably doesn't matter too, too much to you as a coach, but all of a sudden, you know, this player has, you know, it's, it's my eight serves, not coaches, eight serves. So I think the sort of autonomy that you give depends on, you know, the maturity of the athlete and, and where they are in their, their learning journey. Now, on this show, we've just focused on being a volleyball show, and we haven't really tackled COVID, but uh, to kind of tie them together, the AVP's announced an event's coming back, and I'm just wondering, how did you guys handle the break, and how are you ramping it up? Because, obviously, load management is, is a very popular term right now, but for them going into competition, I'm sure they're excited and ready to go, but as a coach, how much are you concerned with how many jumps they're doing, what their shoulders can do? Like, were they able to maintain over the stoppage, or have you had to really manage and limit things in practice kind of leading into these big three events for both your teams? Yeah. Uh, I, th I think I'm lucky that they, they were, were fairly disciplined. I mean, they weren't able to, they were good with their weights and, and conditioning, but they weren't able to jump and swing as much. And we kind of had a sense and we're getting some inside information. The AVPs were coming. So we started to get, to get out and, you know, we just didn't go eight days a week. We just got out and started doing, you know, maybe two days a week. And so we just made sure we spread it out, but, when we were out there, like I was pushing them hard and we were doing this, the, working on the, uh, the things that I thought were most important to work on. And I was having them jump and, and attack and all that. Uh, but it just, it just wasn't, you know, going to be back to back days right away. And we, you know, maybe went for an hour the first day, but the hour was pretty tough. So I guess that's how we managed it. I think some of it was cause we just didn't know when the next tournament would be. And it's hard to be motivated and practice every day if that's the case. But yeah, I think it's definitely making sure you ask questions and, you know, I, I'd follow it up the next day. You guys saw how you feeling? Um, is that, that a good amount of reps? Uh, but yeah, that's how I've gone about it. But I, I kind of err towards the side of like, let's get out and play volleyball. And I don't, I probably don't do well enough of, uh, kind of checking in and making sure we're doing the right warm up and maybe counting jumps, uh, stuff like that. And this summer you were going to, well, obviously training is probably going to continue. Actually, I, I should confirm with my question here, but if the collegiate national team does go ahead, even though we're in the, in the COVID state, what were some things you were looking forward to with that group? Because that's another unique challenge for your coaching resume where I believe all the men are, are probably playing indoor, or at least they don't have the option to play beach at university. So what were you looking forward to that group and, and how are you going to kind of get everybody organized and into beach mode if they were coming off an indoor season? No, yeah, it looks like that the national team won't be able to be anything other than some Zoom sessions. But yeah, I was really excited to have a chance to be around the men's game more. I think it's a, especially with College Beach with the women, where I think we're, we're pretty set up and going to be good for a while, but the boys get forgotten. And for them not to have that that vehicle and kind of something to aim for in, in college uh, puts, puts us behind, I think, behind you know what, what Europe's doing and Brazil's doing. So we don't have that same feeder system. So I guess mainly what I was looking forward to was, you know, kind of teaching them how to learn. I don't, I don't think I would have done a lot of like even fundamental stuff. It would, it would have depended on the time we had, but more just kind of trying to get them to figure out how to, you know, go through a deliberate practice and focus on one thing and how to be, uh, you know, receptive to feedback and 
and things like that. I, I don't know if I would have been, I, I'm actually, I probably would have known I'm going back on it. Depending on the time, I might've changed some approaches and things like that. But I think my, my primary focus would have been to get them to understand how to be really good learners and then to find a love for, for the beach game and, and hopefully share some stories about, you know, why it was so good to me. Now, are there some volleyball truths that you would pass on to them? Like, I think one thing that comes up with gold medal squared a lot is when we're serving, we want to serve into space, we want it to be flat, and we want the ball to float, right? And I think that applies whether we're playing, you know, 12 you or you're, you're playing at the Olympics. Like, there's just some volleyball truths, right? So are there any things that you've really bought into that, it, like I said, it doesn't matter if you're coaching a university team or a pro team, that there's just some truths in beach volleyball that you want to maximize as much as possible? Yeah, uh, there are, and I'm, I'm learning more as we go. I think, you know, Joe Trinzi, who's the, just a master of uh, understanding the, the analytics and, and just a great coach as well, He's uh, he, he helped us out this year at LMU and starting to help us uh, understand these things more because, you know, I think, and what he would say is in 1984, the women's indoor team, the U.S. team, they won the gold medal. And he says because of all that we've learned from an analytics side, you know, strength and conditioning side, He's like, I think half the teams from the Big Ten could beat the 84 gold medal team, which is a pretty crazy feat if you, know, you think about that a college team could beat a, an Olympic uh, gold medal team. But it just shows the progress we've made, you know, how fast the indoor games become, swing blocking, the way people serve, you know, all these advances that have been made. And he, he thinks that on the beach side, we're kind of in that same place where we haven't, you know, really dove in quite as much. And he thinks in, you know, 15 to 20 years, we're going to be, you know, way further ahead and we're going to look back at these teams like, you know, why did we serve like that? Why did we do those things? So uh, we're starting to, you know, I think we're on the frontier of a lot of that and starting to understand it. But yeah, I mean, I guess some of the things that like, I think you, you have to do at a, a high level to be able to be successful is I, I think having a, a slow to fast approach where you can adjust to different sets. And, and when you're attacking, you know, it's got to look like, you know, you got to jump hard and it's got to look like you're hitting or shooting. So I definitely would push that. Starting to find that actually something like serving might be a little bit different than indoor. I mean, I do think serving to space is always going to be effective, but indoor is the, you know, some Joe was finding if, if you pass off the net, it really makes a big difference in side out percentage. You know, you can imagine, you know, when the set or when the pass is 15 feet off the net, all of a sudden you get two or three blockers, you get defenders really balanced and they're able to make plays. So you can see the advantage you have. So as a server, if you can just create some medium passes, you're a really effective server. Where on the beach game, you know, if you, if you pass it 10, 15 feet off the net, it's definitely not as good. But instead of having three blockers, you know, now you might have no blockers. And there's still lots of court to work with. So something he was finding, he, he didn't think creating just like, you know, these like flat serves to space where you got someone a little off the net were quite as effective. It wasn't dropping the percentage the same way it does indoors. So indoors where maybe you wouldn't go for aces as much, you're just trying to create out a system. He thinks on the beach, because side-out percentages are higher and it's a little bit easier to score out a system, there's more value in trying to hit aces. So that's kind of one thing we've been learning and you know, it's just starting to push that mindset to figure out how can we score aces and, and do those sorts of things. So I don't know if I quite exactly answered your question, but that's, that's uh, uh, one thing we've been learning and I think there's going to be a lot more that's ahead of us. 
Yeah, that, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, one thing I wanted to just circle back to is you mentioned just the concept uh, of feeling good and you don't always need to feel good to play well. And I think that that's a great point in beach volleyball because we had Marquise on the show the other day and he talked about, you know, that moment's going to come, that moment in every game where if I don't side out, we're going to lose. So dancing around it or saying you're always going to feel good or your mood's always going to be up, like there's going to be tough moments in beach volleyball. There's no subs, limited timeouts, all that good stuff. So how have you found a way to, to coach that up to let athletes know that you don't have to feel good to win? And, and how do you put them in those tough moments so they can, you know, experience it and really guide themselves throughout this process? Yeah, Mark, Mark nailed it. And I think, I think first you have to talk about it a lot and, and, you know, if you can, you know, we're lucky to have Betsy Flint with us and kind of share her examples. You know, when you, you know, you played in the Hermosa beach final, you know, how good did you feel? How tired were you? Well, I was really, really tired and I, you know, I was jumping three inches lower and you know, how hard did you compete? I competed as hard as I could. Uh, so getting them to understand there's things within our control, you know, the way we compete, uh, where we put our focus, uh, the sort of teammate you are, things like that. And there's things out of our control, you know, how, yeah, how good you, you feel, um, you know, how high you're jumping, things like that. So I think getting them to understand those things. And then, you know, one thing I'll, I'll tell them because, in our practices, you'll see a lot of frustration because we push it pretty hard and we, we want to make practice hard, you know, like the matches are. So I'll, I'll tell them if we went through a practice and, and they didn't make any mistakes and they felt really comfortable the whole time, I'd, I'd tell them, you know, that I'm sorry, that I feel like I really didn't coach them up as well as I could have because uh, they're not going to play any matches that feel that way. They're going to get frustrated. They're going to be pushed. They're going to make mistakes. So in practice, we really try to, to – you know, get them to the edges of their ability so they're making those mistakes. They're getting opportunities to respond to it. You know, maybe the day before we lifted it lifted and conditioned, and today we're a little sore, so it's a great day to get out and, and an opportunity to kind of work on what it feels like to, to maybe side out when you're not jumping like you, you were. So I think it just comes down to, like, what are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on what you don't have or focus on what you do have? And we really try to talk about focusing on what we do have and how we can get the most out of it in this moment. But yeah, I think that's a huge part of the mental game, and it's good to have stories and, and people who have gone through it that can that can talk your way through it and tell them about their experiences. And obviously they can they can tune into your show. I recommend it whether they want to learn about this or not. But Coach Arenzo, you guys talk about learning being a skill and it's something that people can improve on. I was hoping you could share some thoughts of what you've learned over not only as a player and a coach and doing your podcast, but what are some things you do to help athletes acquire that skill? Like I think Megan mentioned there was – you know, notes before practice and they would do some, some mindset things and they would treat that as part of their warm up. Like what are some things that athletes can really apply and put some action towards that, that, you know, I'm going to be a good learner because, you know, I, I do these things and I've added these things to my routine. My first, I think first as a coach, and then I'll go to the athlete as a coach, you really have to, to model it. So if they, I think what happens a lot with growth mindset is coaches, you know, stand there and they say, you got to have a growth mindset. And then they, they play it safe and they never take any risks and, and they stand on their, you know, on their high horse and, and they never push themselves and they never get vulnerable. So I don't think the growth, you know, the growth mindset is not very effective when, you know, you're saying one thing and you're doing another. So it's important for coaches to, to live it out and to be pushing themselves and, and admitting when they're making mistakes in front of their athletes and, and saying, you know, you know, I messed up yesterday. I want to be better and, and asking for feedback. How can I make that drill better for you guys? So I think that's, that's one way, you know, coaches can do it, uh, for athletes. I mean, I think it's first just understanding like what, what real learning is. I think 
what we and understanding what what kind of our defaults would be. I think as humans, we're always searching for the comfortable. You know, we want to we uh, wanted to we want to survive, <laughs> which makes sense. You know, but we're no longer um, out in the uh, the outback and have to just be about survival. We we're past that. So um, so if if you know you're going to practice and you're just working on the things that you're already good at and you want all these you know you know easy balls thrown at you and and maybe bouncing balls that are you know set tight and warm up so I look good then uh, you know I don't know if you're really learning so so I guess just explaining that to to learn you you've got to be in this zone where you're making mistakes we call it the challenge point where you're you know probably making mistakes about 3 to to 7 times out of 10 so lots of times you're messing it up and that that that's good feedback to tell you you're probably focused on the right thing uh, when you're in that challenge zone uh, so explaining that and then, you know, reflection is a really important part of learning. If uh, if we go through practice and, and don't talk about it and don't think about it and forget it all tomorrow, then, you know, was it really an effective practice? I don't think so. So reflection and, and uh, journaling is a great way to retain information. So if we can get the team and, and as an athlete, if you can talk out loud with your partner or with a coach and kind of explain the things you learned and you can journal about it, then there's a much higher chance you're going to remember it and, and be able to do it you know, the next day. So I think those are two big keys. There's, there's a lot more to learning than that, but those are two important ones. Awesome. Awesome, John. I can't thank you enough for sharing all the details. It was great to hear about your career and, and the deep dive you've taken into coaching. Uh, one thing we're trying to make a tradition on the show is just to end with a funny story. So obviously you've played at the highest level, you've won AVPs, you've won FIVs. You're, you're obviously an amazing coach, but man, volleyball creates some unique opportunities for all of us. I was wondering if you could tell us a, a funny story to give our listeners a laugh before we let you go. Yeah, I'm not the funniest guy in the world, but I'll, I'll try to give you something decent. Um, one one image that popped out. I played with Ryan Doherty, who's seven foot one, and we were in Switzerland and uh, decided to go. I think after the tournament, decided to go up and do this this mountain and do this ropes course, and uh, just seeing him all harnessed up and uh, climbing these things was was uh, pretty entertaining. <laughs> and even just like kind of traveling around the world with him, like going through airports and walking through, uh, I don't know, we'd be in New Orleans or we'd be in China. Just the looks you'd get uh, was always entertaining. But for myself, one that, that jumped out is, uh, and we were talking about travel a little bit earlier and, and just the challenges of travel. I remember, I think it was early on, maybe 2010, when I was uh, playing FIVB and went out to an event in China. I think it was in Beijing. And I don't, I'm pretty sure, I've, I'm always pretty bad with technology, but I didn't have you know, a smartphone with like service that I could use out there. So my plan was I wrote down my hotel info on a piece of paper. So, and I, and I was all about public transportation. So I, I get into whatever I fly in and then I take a train. And then my plan was to grab a taxi to the hotel. Cause I knew I was like fairly near the area, but I had all my luggage. I didn't, I didn't know how to like walk there. I didn't have a map. So I write down this hotel name and I was like, okay, I'll just go up to a cab and I'll, you know, I'll show them my hotel name and I'll be set. And so, you know, this again shows how naive and how little I knew about the world. So I go up and I, I show, you know, the cab driver, can you take me here? And the first guy's like super confused and look out and just, no, get out of, you know, not in English, but get out of here. Tried about three or four more. And I'm trying to like, why are they not like, why can't they just take me? Don't they want my money? And then I finally realized, oh, they, you know, in Chinese, they write, you know, they don't write letters like we do in English. So they had no idea what, what was said there. So now I'm just walking around Beijing with like all this luggage. I have no idea how I'm going to get there. I don't have any map or any. So I just ended up in this kind of mess of a situation. I think I eventually found like someone who spoke English and helped me out, but, and who like translated my writing. 
but so yeah, that was just one of many kind of, I don't know if that's even a funny story, just a sad story for uh, <laughs> how little I knew about the world and, and uh, yeah, just the mistakes I made as a traveler. And, and I remember, yeah, just kind of freak like, man, I'm walking around with all this stuff. I'm not going to be ready to play tomorrow. <laughs> this is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I think China is second on our list of funny stories. I think Norseka has produced the most and oh, then China yeah. just oh, seems yeah. to be an adventure for beach volleyball players. Yeah. I think I, I think I tried to just black out all my experiences on that tour the Norseka tour. So I, I probably didn't even think of any, but yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, that's a uh, quite the experience showing up for those events. I actually reminded me one, I think that's the thing with them is like, they, they'd want you to follow like all these protocols and all these rules. Like I think actually Stafford slick and I played one and like our, the color of our shorts, like, I don't know, mine where they're both black, but mine had some like red design on it. So they wouldn't let us play. And it's like, are you guys crazy? Like, we showed up here and you're teaching the refs the rules. The lines <laughs> aren't even set up. You know, there's there's like rocks and chickens on the court. And you're worried about like that I have a little red on my shorts. I think you guys are like completely worried about the wrong things right now. So there's so many of those with, with that tour. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I could go on on that. But, yeah. yeah, we've had players find beer bottles in the sand, knives. We've had uh, one of the funny one was MC LaPointe said the court backed onto a playground at a school. And whenever recess happened, the kids would basically just alpha the players out of the way because you were in their space, right? So they basically interrupted games with recess. Like, it, it's never that smooth. It is a professional tour, but some of the venues and the way some of the conveners are run, it's just always an adventure. You never know what you're going to get at an Orsica. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think some of it comes from, like, entitlement and, you know, how luck, you know, not realizing how lucky I was to be born where I was and going out there, you know, thinking you're um, better than you are. So I think, you know, looking back on it, it's like probably should have been a lot more thankful and grateful for what they, you know, were sacrificing and, and running for us. But coming from my experience, I didn't understand it. And, and, uh, it puts you in some unique situations, that, <laughs> uh, leads to, yeah, some good stories, but, um, that tour through the years did get better and it has come a long way. Oh, for um, sure. I hope, yeah. I hope I can come back uh, after COVID. Well, awesome. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I definitely learned a lot. So people can tune in to Coach Your Brains Out and learn more about you. They can become fans of LMU. They can pay attention to some AVP stuff because hopefully your teams get into those events. And yeah, you're, you're not an easy or you're not a hard guy to find, I guess. All they have to do is get on Google and they can be a big fan of yours. So thanks for taking the time and, and sharing all that you did. Thank you, Josh. This is great. Um, I learned a lot from you. I wish I could interview as well as you did. Those are good questions and good follow-ups, and uh, it was fun getting to know you more. I hope we can connect uh, sometime soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks again. All right, thanks.